Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the White Collar Crime Edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. And oh my God, do we have a cracker of a show for you this week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined as ever by Anna Shemansky. Hello. And not one, but two incredibly special guests. We have a guy who's been on this show once or twice before, Jesse Isinger. Thank you for having me back. Welcome. Um, You have a day job at ProPublica. As much as uh, anyone can have a day job and ProPublica. Yeah, somehow you have also managed to produce a weighty tome. You have a book out. It is an enjoyable, uh, brisk <laughs> read. I completely object to that characterization. Plug your book, Jesse. Uh, the Chicken Shit Club, coming out from Simon & Schuster on Tuesday. It is a book about how the federal government lost the will and ability to prosecute top corporate officers. We are going to be talking about Jesse's book, which is a thrilling read, an enjoyable term. You can take it to the beach. Buy it on Tuesday so it hits the top of the Amazon list on the you'll week it comes out. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll want to join the revolution. And and yeah, you'll you'll read lots of nice things about Jim Comey, which you wrote before he became, you know, topic number. The Jim Comey, yeah. yeah. Um, we also have, because Jesse is not enough for this amazingly packed show. We are going to talk about Jesse's book, of course. We are going to talk about um, the culture of impunity in Silicon Valley and all of the sort of fallout from the endemic sexual harassment that has been going on there. Um, And we are also, because we have to, we are going to talk about this completely bonkers um, hobby lobby antiquities smuggling the best case. story ever it's such a great story and to help us talk about that we have larry coben hi felix um larry you have so many you you are many many things how would you, how can we introduce you uh i'm a former businessman turned archaeologist turned preservationist there you go so larry and you're also a lawyer i have a law degree and you're also a I banker. Guess once a lawyer, always a lawyer. Uh, no, I've actually never been a banker. You've never it's, been a banker. It's the one profession, in fact, of all the hundred <laughs> professions available in New York that I have never been. So, um, so Larry is is going to be 
helping to guide us with the aid of his archaeology um, doctorate through some of the um, complexities of the Hobby Lobby case. We will get to that. Um, but first, let's talk about the chicken shit club. This is actually a Jim Comey phrase, is it not, Jesse? Yes. Um, in 2002, before uh, you may know him from such roles as the <laughs> former FBI director uh, fired by President Trump, but before this, long before this, in 2002, Comey became the most powerful federal prosecutor after the attorney general, arguably the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. And uh, he... This is the role that Preet Bharara was this, fired from. Yes, exactly. Preet just uh, and Robert Morgenthau before him. Uh, it's an incredibly important office, the most important office for prosecuting corporate crime in America, I would say. And uh, Comey gathered all the young prosecutors in the office, the criminal prosecutors together. And these guys really, you have to understand, are the, the best of the best of the best. They went to the best schools, the best law schools, best clerkships. They're the hottest shots. And uh, if you have any doubt, you can just ask any one of them. Um, they will assure <laughs> They'll be happy you. to tell you. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, so he, Comey gives a speech. He loves speeches, as you know. He loves the, the limelight, um, as President Trump uh, pointed out. And uh, so he he says, I, I want to give you guys a talk. And he said, uh, how many of you guys have never lost a case? And a bunch of hands shoot up because these guys are uh, the best lawyers in the country. And he says, me and my friends have a name for you guys, the Chicken Shit Club. And a bunch of hands go back down. <laughs> uh, um, and they get a little sheepish. And so what, would, what did he mean by that? And why did I title the book this? Well, what he meant was if you are – you're not your job is not about winning. Your job is to do justice, um, to bring righteous cases. And if you're not taking on the most powerful uh, wrongdoers in the country, then you are not doing your jobs. And we know that in this kind of capitalist society, the most powerful people are the corporate bigwigs, the CEOs. And it's hard to bring cases against those people. The, it is hard. But what I argue is that from that time, which was the last high point of prosecuting top corporate executives, you know, when we, we prosecuted Enron and WorldCom and Tyco and Adelphia and Global Crossing, et cetera, we prosecuted the top executives from many of those companies. Uh, from that time, from the, in the last uh, decade and a half, the Department of Justice has lost the will and skill set to be able to do this. And I argue that's why they don't prosecute them now. And this is why top corporate executives in this country have impunity to commit crime. And I know you also point out in the book that with the Enron case, especially in terms of what happened with Arthur Anderson, that that was a big deal in terms of creating this idea that if you prosecuted individuals as well as the companies they worked with, you could put them out of business. And then that became kind of the symbol of prosecutorial overreach. And then that was used as an excuse, essentially, to then not move forward with larger cases with the idea of like, what could this what could be the systemic impact? Yeah, exactly. So uh, Enron is the last high point, but also the turning point, because there's a backlash against the Enron prosecutions, mainly against Arthur Anderson, because they put the company out of business. And what I seek to do in the book is to rehabilitate that decision and explain why I think it was justified what a Anderson was as an entity, because I think it was a corrupted entity that was the handmaiden to not just Enron's accounting fraud, but WorldCom, 
waste management, Sunbeam, the list goes on and on. And uh, But instead what happens is they prosecute that company successfully. Um, it does go out of business and that is unfortunate for the workers. Most of the employees got found jobs. But what happens is – there's an enormous corporate lobbying and defense bar backlash against that um, and many other things over the course of the next decade. And they win the argument. The companies win the argument. And what they what they end up doing is convincing the Department of Justice that they were overly aggressive about prosecuting corporate crime. They decide that they can't indict companies that are too big to fail or too sensitive or will have these collateral consequences. And they turn to settling with corporations for money. And in doing that, they lose sight of this vital thing for ensuring justice in America, which is that they forget and they they don't emphasize prosecuting individual actors, which in fact is the solution to worries about systemic risk. So, so there seem to be three levels of, of prosecution here that you can either just settle a case for money or if you want to go harder, you can try and indict the company. And then if you want to go harder still, you can try and prosecute the individuals, criminally prosecute the in individuals who run that company. Um Arthur Anderson, the individuals were largely unscathed, no? Well, there was – the reason why they were able to prosecute it successfully is that one top individual pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice for – Arthur Anderson was Enron's auditor and destroyed – Lots of documents. <laughs> literally tons <laughs> and tons of documents um, uh, right before it was subpoenaed. But uh, en Enron had been subpoenaed. There was obviously a criminal and um, civil investigation into it. Um, and so uh, – Yes, your your order is exactly what the Department of Justice sort of has defaulted to, which is settlement first, um, possibly some kind of indictment, although that's essentially off the table. And wouldn't it be nice to prosecute individuals? And my argument would be you need to reverse that and emphasize bringing individuals um, to justice. This is extremely difficult. I don't think this is an easy job. But then again, Preet Bharara didn't sign up for an easy job. If he wants an easy job, he can uh, plant daylilies in his backyard. Um, but uh, then you can try to settle with a corporation or indict the corporation if appropriate. You shouldn't take that off the table. And then finally, if you haven't indicted them, you do reach a settlement. I don't think that these things are um, should be banned, but I think that they should be DM. So let me bring Larry in here. Um, as someone who's been in the corporate world um, long enough to predate Enron, um, is there any reason to believe that the behavior of corporate executives over the past decade is in any way more law-abiding than it was back when we had all of these prosecutions? I think we certainly went through a stretch post-Enron when it was more law-abiding, and I should say that post-bankruptcy, and I'll make it clear, post-bankruptcy, I was on one of the two Enron boards, so I was fairly close to what happened, at least with respect to the international assets, and I'm a board chairman today of a public company. But yes, a lot of processes were put in place. A lot of people were terrified. Accountants in particular were terrified. I have never seen accountants be more strict and concerned about their futures than in the period 2003 to 2007. I don't want to say that they've stopped being concerned, but they were really 
terrified that they were going to be next. So there is little question in my mind that individual prosecutions and the threat of their company being taken down out of business had a serious impact. Whether it's affected corporate behavior, Felix, I think less so because there are always going to be venal people who will calculate their odds and try to get around this. And I think it's as much a matter of integrity as it is about and, the And do law. you think those venal people, um, to Jesse's thesis is those venal people, if they're a top big enough companies and have enough money and enough lawyers, essentially have impunity these days? I think it's gotten close. I mean, the Supreme Court has changed some of the standards by which you can prosecute people, and they've made that far, far more difficult. Uh, I don't want to prejudge our discussion of Hobby Lobby, but it's an example. If you have enough defenses and set your defenses up correctly, the road to prosecution today is extraordinarily difficult. So unless it's something particularly blatant that you've done, like actually take money and put it into your own bank account, I think it has gotten more difficult to prosecute these folks. And I really do think this is very important because I know another thing that you point out is this idea that the Obama administration is really focused on changing essentially corporate culture, this kind of more idea of like we want to change systemically to prevent this from happening in the future. But again, if you give impunity to the people at the top, you can't possibly change the culture. Exactly. I think this has been the great failing of the Obama administration. Where They had a very technocratic response to this and a kind of systemic response. The notion that you would reform the banking system by passing Dodd-Frank, which is sort of infernally technocratic, um, and not couple it with – and then these these um, enforcement where you have settlements re, um, and maybe a monitor to come in and sort of look at the corporate behavior instead of prosecuting individuals. And what my argument is, you if you decouple these or if you neglect the uh, investigations and prosecutions and public airing of the bad behavior, you undermine the legitimacy of your efforts. So I think these things need to be coupled. Um, the Obama administration, the technocratic sort of democratic, um, the Democrats uh, – kind of default is to look at these these problems systemically. The old-fashioned Republican idea was weed out the bad apples, which was in insufficient, so, but but better than the, what the Republicans now do, which is uh, hands Not off a, the crime. More bad apples. And more, yeah, let's bring <laughs> the bad apples in and no systemic And, and let's elect one president of um, the United States. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So, um, so we have, we have a, we have a deeply broken system um, full of of injustice that has undermined the credibility of um, obviously Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions, um, but also the Obama administration undermined Hillary and I think led to Trump um, and uh, has eroded belief. I think it's deeply con contributed to this notion that we have an inequitable society. Do you think this is driven in part by the fact that so many of these people now make up the donor class for pretty much all politicians so that you don't want to be the person who takes on Wall Street as Elliot Spitzer did or takes on all these corporations because the donors won't show up? Yes, absolutely. So one of the big problems, I think, is that the Obama administration and the Democrats draw from the same well uh, for their prosecutors that the Republicans do. It's just slightly different firms or slightly different people, but it's the same law firms and the same culture of Washington criminal defense lawyers um, that the Republicans do. So the Democrats might 
go to Wilmer Hale, the Republicans go to Jones Day, but all those people are on the same cocktail circuit. They've gone to the same schools. They send their children to the same elite private schools. And um, if you are attempting as a prosecutor to prosecute these people, there is an enormous amount of sort of class affinity that you have to overcome. Um, And you just don't see a very well-educated Goldman Sachs banker who is articulate, who might have a degree in, say, antiquities or something like that, <laughs> not, not, um, as uh, as a criminal. They just don't see him uh, as a criminal. So they have to overcome an enormous amount of – so it is it is what you said earlier, Larry, about um, the, the courts making this more difficult, um, but it also is a cultural and incentive issue. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking back to, you know, when – we prosecuted Martha Stewart and she went to jail. And I'm trying to think how like that would be more or less unthinkable today. It wasn't that long ago. Well, I don't entirely agree with that because I think that what they point to are these sort of piecemeal um, discrete issues of kind of technicalities and minor things that – so Martha Stewart, they, they prosecute – and we'll get to this in a second – people like Kelly or Martha Stewart or – um, or Raj Rajaratnam, these these discrete crimes from um, people who have high profiles. What they can't do is systemically look at crimes at Walmart or a Google or an Apple or a GM or any of the big banks and work their way up through the ranks to get to the highest level corporate executive that they can. Right. That poses two and so and so that so let's quickly wrap this up with a with a short little tale of um, Jordan Weissman's favorite high school buddy Martin Shkreli. Martin Shkreli, um, uh, you know, is the most hated man in America for doing unspeakable things to drug prices. And he was the CEO of a couple of different drug companies and everyone hated them and they were kind of skeevy in many different ways. And he is now being criminally prosecuted. And the irony is that the criminal prosecution has nothing to do with him being the CEO of these drug companies. Although you maybe could argue, would this case have come to trial if he wasn't the most hated person in the world. I, I, I mean, what he did was pretty blatant. He essentially was using this company as a piggy bank to pay investors in these hedge funds that went belly up. But it, I, I do wonder if he wasn't Martin Shkreli, if this would have been prosecuted in the way it is. I mean, I'm glad it is, but... And my answer is he wouldn't. Um, and not only that, but uh, you have got a another example of a company that is experiencing impunity, it seems, it's a little too early to say, while Shkreli is being um, on trial, which is Valiant. Um, Valiant was a company that appears to have engaged in an enormous amount of deception, gouging people on prices, not revealing its true financials to investors. Um, and that investigation, if it is going on, it's been reported that it's going on, is making no progress. Whether they'll bring charges eventually, we don't know. But you couple that, that is a big company that was $40 billion market cap, maybe more, $80 billion market cap at one point, um, a darling of Wall Street. If they went after those companies, you would restore some credibility. But instead, they're going after a little more. They're money. hard cases, but they don't have easy smoking guns uh, or absolutely. hated. I mean, Martha Stewart was easy. She got a phone call. Yeah, but Tyco was hard. 
you know. Tycho was hard. So and and Enron was hard. Enron so was we very f- hard. we think of Enron a little bit. Uh, we think of it as an obvious fraud on reflection. But in fact, if you look at the cases against Lay and Skilling, there was no direct evidence against them. What they had to do was they didn't put stupid shit in email which is um, the way they rely on making cases now. Um, And instead, what they had to do is the old-fashioned way, treat it like a a criminal organization, a mob organization, and roll up the capos to get to the – roll up the soldiers to get to the capos to get to the capo di tutti capi. And um, I think my argument is today's Justice Department could not prosecute lay and skilling successfully. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery – which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. So let's let's move on, Jesse, to the place where there's most sort of anger right now, which is the West Coast, which is Silicon Valley. And, you know, we never stop talking about... Have a lot of anger to go around, but okay. I'll, I'll, I'll spread <laughs> Every some. Coast. I'll spread some. Around. The, the, you know, uh, the New York Times has been out in front on reporting about, like, the endemic nature of sexual harassment among venture capitalists. We recently had a bunch of resignations of people like Justin Kuhlbeck and Dave McClure, who are venture capitalists. Um, half of the Uber senior... Man- if not all of the Uber senior management seems to have, like, left or been fired. Um there's constant rumblings about, I mean, not even rumblings, but there's quite vocal talk um, from virtually every woman in Silicon Valley about how horrible the atmosphere is there. And the culture of impunity has certainly existed until now. It might slowly be fraying around the edges. But again, like the absolute worst thing that ever seems to happen to anyone is they get fired, right? Um, you know, we're, again, this is not something where we're going to see criminal prosecutions of what seem to be on a relatively frequent level criminal acts. Well, uh, that seems like a, a harder question. I mean, to some extent, there has been, I mean, it's significant accountability that uh, Travis Kalanick gets um, ousted from his company, that all these guys are resigning from venture capital firms. Um you know whether uh, uh, whether sexual harassment, um, which this clear, there are multiple examples of uh, um, appalling behavior, turns into criminal behavior. I that's a that's a very difficult line, and I'm not sure that uh, um, terrible and inappropriate emails um, uh, hitting on women um, will cross the line to criminal um, acts that are uh, imprisoning. Um, so uh, I think that. The 
one one important aspect here is cultural opprobrium. Um, and we rewarded a lot of bankers after the financial crisis by putting Chuck Prince on a panel at Aspen Ideas as if he was an intellectual. What it, it, to the extent that the culture changes in Silicon Valley, that's an important uh, check on corporate um, entitlement. I'll be interested to see how many of these people resurface in other firms or in advisory consulting positions very quickly, because I think that will really speak to cultural change. Right, because McClure, in theory, stepped down, but he still seems to be very much involved. I am very suspicious that there's any change here whatsoever, and I just find it infuriating the like emails and the blog posts that come out from these guys where they're just like, oh, you know, I I messed up. I was a creep. I, I just made a mistake. And I'm just like, it's not a mistake. Like this, I, and even though it's, it's like, oh, they're taking, you know, responsibility, they're not taking responsibility. It's just another way of them trying to make themselves be like, I get it. I'm one of the good guys. I'll reform. And it's like, no, this is, a, and frankly, this is a larger problem than sexual harassment. Like that is one part that kind of everybody talks about, but we then aren't dealing with why is sexual harassment allowed? Well, part of the reason it's allowed is because this is an all-male environment. Why is it an all-male environment? Because of so many systemic issues down the line, so many instances of kind of sexual discrimination, gender discrimination that leads to this, to an environment where this kind of thing can flower. And and it's not just Silicon Valley. I mean, it's no. also Fox News. Um, but there are cultures where this kind of behavior is rampant and universal and generally accepted and silicon valley is definitely one of those cultures and larry is absolutely right that i mean historically this would happen quite a lot that you know you would get allegations against some individual he would quietly leave some firm because you know they had a difference in investment strategies or some like you know euphemism like that and then he would pop up somewhere else and no one would know the true story. So it's very important for sunshine to be shone on these things. But anyone who ever attempted to do that in the past would get incredibly angry threats of litigation and this kind of thing and would get cut out of deal flow. And I am equally suspicious that that's really going to change. The people in Silicon Valley still um, tend to retaliate against the people who attack their friends. Yes, in every industry. And again, like when you are a woman in almost any industry, you usually deal with some form of sexual harassment. It, it just almost every woman I know and almost no one will ever do anything because if you weigh the cost and benefits, you're like, why would I? Like it has to raise to such a high level. And you also would almost always have to see other people bringing cases against this person before you'll do anything. And that is simply just almost in every industry. I think Silicon Valley is particularly interesting, though, because the whole culture there is predicated on breaking rules and creating new paradigms. Exactly. And so, you know, when Uber would go into a town, they didn't care that their service was legal or not. They were going to run it until somebody actually forced them to stop. So if rules don't matter to you in your culture, and they rewarded people to be rule breakers. I think it was one of the things on Travis's <laughs> manifesto. Well, if you tell people to be rule breakers, how can you go, you're, let's break every rule except this one? That's not a corporate culture that has any ability to, you know, remain working. And it's not only that, but they're so invested in their righteousness um, that they envelop all of their branding and all of their self-image in this notion that whatever they're doing brings 
wonderful things to uh, the world, uh, that they're not evil, that they're, um, in fact, doing bestowing their genius and generosity upon the the masses. And um, and so, that, you know, and everything is line caught and free range and <laughs> um, and ethically sourced. And so uh, they have this sense that they uh, the the they do no wrong. Um, and and that in in anything that they any action that they take is justified because of the ends. Um, it's a pretty appalling culture, and I'm glad that it's being. I, I'm surprised that you're so skeptical because I am just from this coast flabbergasted the number of people who are going on the record and the amount of the women the cor- courage of all these women standing up s- strikes me as uh, a really telling moment. And of course, it did start with. An extraordinary act of one non-journalist posting a um, a Susan blog, Fowler, yeah. um, a blog item on um, a, you know her own personal blog. So it's not a piece of journalism that really broke this. But then the information uh, had stories. The New York Times had stories, and so it's building and building. I I'm uh, astonished at how much momentum it has gotten in the last few weeks. Yeah, and we'll see where it actually goes. I I don't know. I, I'm just. A little dubious. <laughs> and do you think that? How, okay, here's the question: How will we know um, whether the whether anything real has actually changed, and how long will it take for us to know that? I mean, I think part of it will be as as Silicon Valley matures. I guess that's more of my hope. Uh, is it not fifty years old? I mean, like, no, how? but I mean, if you're talking, because I do think that if you're my assumption would be that a lot of this stuff comes out of kind of VC culture and a lot of smaller startups that don't have human resources departments, that don't have adults in charge. And as that starts to come into play, and as, again, if there are actually significant consequences, maybe at some point, and when you start to get more women at different levels, then you'll start to see some changes. Because I will say, kind of going on the other side, I do think there have been significant changes in banking and finance and related, related to this. In I a mean, way that- it was starting from such a low bar that you, I mean, you know, in the 90s, they were uh, having strippers on the trading floor. So, you know. Right. But I also say, like, you know, I've I've worked in all male teams where it was fine. And, it, and this is another reason why I really do push back when people say, like, oh, it's just because, you know, when you have a group of all guys, you know, they just behave like this because that's and I'm like, no, that's actually not true because I've worked with all men where they don't behave like that. Exactly. And that was, you know, when Hashtag when not all men. when uh Donald Trump you know, when that tape came out about his pussy grabbing comments and people started talking about locker room talk. I'm like, I have been in locker rooms. <laughs> <laughs> I have never heard anyone talk like that in locker rooms. It's it's not like there's there's a cultural thing there yeah. beyond just like a group of guys thing. Right. And again, I think this is it's larger than just sexual harassment. And I think it's again, it's part of so many barriers to getting women into higher echelons of power. And once that starts to happen, I think hopefully then some things will change. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% 
to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Larry Kerbin, this I, I want to give you the floor and because all we have been trying to do desperately is not talk about Hobby Lobby. Now we can talk about Hobby Lobby <laughs> in this completely bonkers case. Um, where to start? The, the whole idea of trade in antiquities and antiquities being things which are bought and sold. Tell us like what that is. That trade in antiquities is as old as the antiquities themselves. People have always wanted to collect objects of great beauty, objects of historical significance, and own them. The issue is when and how should you be able to do that? And what's happened normally is that people go and they steal these things or they take them out of the ground, digging up archaeological sites, destroying our history, destroying our past, and then sell them through illicit markets. So there isn't. And if there was no market, if there was no demand for these objects, that acts of destruction would probably not happen. Felix, absolutely correct. As you know, I, I run a foundation predicated <laughs> on exactly that principle. So I'm a huge believer in this is a demand-driven phenomenon. I mean, people wouldn't refine and sell cocaine if nobody wanted to actually use cocaine. So antiquities are like, uh, I guess, maybe cocaine for classicists. <laughs> <laughs> and the and the And the classicist in question here is a guy called Stephen Green. Uh, I would call him a biblical archaeologist uh, collector, biblical archaeology collector. And he's trying to put together a museum of biblical artifacts. Yes. I mean, the origins of American and European archaeology or modern actually begins with trying to prove the Bible true. If you look at why the UPenn Museum or the Met Museum are founded. Isn't it? They're, they're I'm groups. confused. What? The Bible isn't true? <laughs> the the um, scales well, are falling from my eyes. You know, I can't say yes and I can't say no. There's somebody greater power, I think, that can make that decision. But that's the origins of archaeology. And so people would go off to Mesopotamia, to Ur and Nineveh, try to find all of these places that are mentioned in the Bible, try to find mentions of the rulers and then go, well, you see, it says that so-and-so did this on the cuneiform. Therefore, everything he did in the Bible must be true. Or Abraham was born in Ur. We found Ur. Therefore, the entire, everything that Abraham is mentioned in the Bible. is. So this is the origin, Felix, of archaeology, in fact. Wow. And, and, so, and so when the Green family who own Hobby Lobby and are multi-billionaires and are also devout Christians – um, decide to build a museum of biblical artifacts, they're basically continuing a tradition which goes back centuries. They or are a century. They are continuing a tradition that goes back centuries, but they're not it's different from biblical archaeology as I described, which was scientific excavations, objects recorded, information and context known. The big problem is they have 40,000 objects. No one has any idea where these objects come from. They think they're from Iraq, but they don't know if they're from Ur, from Nineveh, what site they're from, how far, how old they are, you know, what they were found in relation to, which building they were found in. So all of the information that those artifacts, which could tell us so much about ancient people, is now completely lost. And so it's not the same. The tradition was, let's actually study this. Let's not collect it and forget about the knowledge that's that's incorporated within them. So, okay, so let's now talk about this case. Sure. Um, now, now, I mean, the, I mean, this is 
completely bizarre to me, but the defendant in the case is actually like 450 cuneiform tablets. I love civil forfeiture cases. <laughs> it's the, it's the, and in fact, if you actually read the decision, it does. It, it's not against Hobby Lobby. It's against the people that sold Hobby Lobby the objects because the objects were confiscated before they got to Hobby Lobby. Well, Hobby Lobby settles. Hobby Lobby settles, but Hobby Lobby basically settles for forfeiting uh, money that came as a result of something happening with those objects, and we don't know what. I don't know if they sold them to somebody or something transpired. They settle for a pittance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, you want to talk about a slap on the wrist? That's maybe a slap on the pinky. Yeah. Well, I want to get to that in a second, but you've. So, you know, so Hobby Lobby then takes the, the case. There's no, you know, you come back to the point we were discussing before. What kind of a deterrent is this? It's, it's a mind, you forfeit the objects that you had to have known were not legally acquired. Because it's right. actually basically impossible to acquire that number of objects with those objects all having proper provenance and everyone knowing where they come from well there's that number one number two if you're if if you know what you're buying i'm not sure why you label everything you know tile floor tiles <laughs> right so right. I, I, this is the point that i wanted to bring up which is i it's inexplicable explicable to me that this is not a criminal case uh, because you have clear evidence of intent. And as uh, that's the thing that's most difficult in these uh, difficult criminal cases uh, for in corporations is that you have to get into the heads of these corporate executives and you can use evidence. And what evidence they have here is, one, they were warned. There was an attorney at the company that said, uh, guys, uh, uh, be careful here. Um, uh, this, may, this is breaking the rules. And then two, they disguise, they conceal their activities. Um, uh, and they like wire the payment to seven different personal right. bank accounts in six different exactly. countries, and you're like, exactly. how is this not just? You so, obviously knew what you were so doing. It is. It is a case, and I don't understand why. Um, and there should be some public accounting for this. Why this is not a criminal action brought by the federal government? Oh, and beyond that, why are they settling with? Hobby Lobby, which is a faceless corporation, you know, based in Delaware or wherever it is, um, rather when Hobby Lobby was clearly just being used as like a useful corporate front by the Green family, who are individuals. I I don't know why. I mean, I don't I don't know why the Museum of the Bible, where all of these objects were supposed to end up, is not doesn't seem to be a part of this case. They don't seem to want to go to anyone individually. I presume that some clever lawyers prepared a whole lot of interesting internal paperwork that hopefully we'll get to see at some point that put up defenses and, you know, as the same way that the Godfather would always do everything through his consigliere. I have no doubt that the same thing transpired here and that there are layers and cutouts that will make it more difficult to get the but top person. Do you think the Department of Justice tried to go after the Museum of the Bible and the Green family? I don't. I think there's not enough caring or interest in the department to take on antiquities-related cases. I mean, the Department of Justice in 2004 prosecuted a journalist named Joseph Broud who brought three or four, I can't remember exactly, tablets back through customs and didn't declare them. But that was an easy case. He came with them. It was clearly illegal. He lied to customs that he had them, and he was an individual person who didn't have, you know, it was a slam dunk case for them. So I think, it, it, again, if it's not a slam dunk, they don't want to do it. They're only interested in stopping these things 
when they think it might be funding ISIS or somebody like that. Okay, so let's let's ask you about that because, I mean, there have been a bunch of reports in this Hobby Lobby case that the money that they were spending on these antiquities may in large part have gone to ISIS. Is that true? Probably not because the case predates ISIS, but it certainly worked to create a market which ISIS is exploiting. These particular objects were seized in 2011, which really predates the rise of ISIS. It's taken six years for them to just come up with a slap on the wrist. It's absurd. I mean, the moment they seized those objects, everybody who knows anything about this field knew that they were not legal objects. Patty Gerstenblith, who runs the Cultural Law Center at DePaul University, said she met with them and, quote, read them the riot act, describing what you could and could not import. Essentially, if you import antiquities from Iraq, 99.99% of the time, that's not they're not going to be legal objects. So you probably shouldn't do it. I will just say my favorite part, though, about this entire case is that part of the reason we're not prosecuting the Greens is, is again, they're saying that there's some separation between themselves and their corporation. I I would just like to go back to the Supreme Court case in which the entire reason that the (laughs) company has essentially a freedom, the a kind of freedom of religion right is because it's a closely held family corporation that is connected to the religious beliefs of the individuals who own it. So that's my favorite um, contradiction about this. And so, Larry, what do you think um, in an ideal world would happen to the Museum of the Bible and anyone else who um, aspires to bringing antiquities together in museums? Do antiquities just basically not belong in in museums? No, I think contextualized antiquities belong in museums. They're wonderful. I mean, many museums, their objects were properly excavated and recorded. I think it's great that people get to see them. It creates an excitement about the past. It lets us know our potential as human beings, both good and bad. Archaeology, I think, is incredibly important. But simply effectively stealing objects out of the ground and destroying archaeological sites to get them, I would love to see those folks go to jail. I don't know that we're ever going to commit the amount of resources. If we're not going to commit them to these giant financial frauds we were talking about before, these smaller antiquities cases, they're not. I mean, that's why we also have to work on you know the source countries and making it uneconomic for people to you know take these things out of the ground by instead – creating economic development programs that utilize these objects and utilize these sites within their countries like we do in the Sustainable Preservation Initiative to make that happen. Okay, so um, plug for your organization. I thought I just did one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, what we it, do... It's called SBI. It's, it's called sustainable, the Sustainable Preservation Initiative. And you, you're, you're mostly active in, in Peru and around there? Peru, Guatemala, and Jordan right now and expanding to three more countries this year, so stay tuned. And you're... And you're I, and, your project is to basically monetize antiquities while they're still in the ground. It's essentially, yes, to monetize these sites and make them sustainable economic assets for their communities rather than one-time destroyed ones where the benefits end up working for some middleman or some collector. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. 
Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. It's time for a numbers round. Um, Anna. So my number is six. And that is the number of tax rates in the goods and services tax that was just instituted in India. So Wow. Yes. So this is legitimately like a huge deal. This is this is a sales tax? It's yeah, it's essentially like a VAT that it but it's it's huge. I mean it, in theory it's replacing this mishmash of just like countless local taxes that has made it essentially impossible to move goods back and forth between different states in India. So ultimately this is in theory, huge in terms of really making India a single market. However, there have been so many, it's really been rushed. There's a lot of politics involved in how things are getting classified, which rate they're getting put under. So it's not, by so no it, means it's, what it's it should be. depending on what kind of a good you are. If, you, yeah. if, you, if you're an orange, it's one kind of thing. Literally, if you're a yes. Book, it's another kind of yeah, thing. Exactly. Yeah. So it's still far more complicated than it should be, but it's actually a really big deal. My number is. Uh, one of my favorite little statistical things that when prices go down, prices go up. Um, this is the Manhattan real estate market. Um, and we just had the second quarter numbers come in for the Manhattan real estate, and they all went up. The median Manhattan apartment is $1.2 million. Now, the average Manhattan apartment is $2.2 million. The average condo is $3.1 million, and the average new condo is $4.7 million. These numbers are all not only enormous, but they're all rising as well. And the reason why they're all rising... You are a property owner in Manhattan, Louis. There should be full <laughs> disclosure here yeah, for this the, advertisement. The, the reason why they're all rising is, you're going to love this one, because at the top end of the market, those new condos, which average $4.7 million, those prices have been coming down. Um, they, they're down about 10%. And because they're down about 10% at the very, very high end of the market, um, you know, they're sort of $20, $30, 40000000 million apartments, um, a lot more of them are selling. They finally reduced the prices to the point at which people were willing to buy them. And now you just have a whole bunch of these you know, 20 and $30 million deals, and those are bringing the, all of the averages up. So the, if, if, you, if the prices come down, the prices go up. It's amazing. It's good for that gated community. And, uh, <laughs> on, on 57th Street. Uh, yeah, uh, Jesse. Uh, my number is 0 0.29. Um, you guys may think I have a fixed idea here. but uh, So there's a ju federal judge in West Virginia who put a little Excel spreadsheet in an opinion excoriating uh, U.S. attorneys for uh, doing, doing too many plea bargains um, and not, never bringing people to trial, which, of course, infects uh, not only the kind of problems in the criminal justice system for street criminals, but also this fear of trials infects why we don't bring top corporate executives to um, uh, to trial and then try to uh, put them in prison. 0 0.29 is the n average in 2016 of the criminal trials handled by each federal prosecutor in the country, and that compares to eight in 1973, they used to do many, many more trials. Trials are a public airing. Of so wait, we have on evidence. average, each prosecutor takes 0 0.29 cases to, to trial, trial each a year. year. Yes, fewer one one every three years, roughly. 
So um, uh, this lack of trial experience erodes justice, one, because trials are public airing of evidence and the public gets to see it, but also it erodes their skill set. Larry, give us a number. My number, Felix, is 5,500. 5,500 is the number of objects that were seized in the Hobby Lobby case. Whoa. And 5,500 years ago is about what the time when we found the first cuneiforms in Sunaria, Sumeria. Well, I mean, so I think 5,500 5, years ago going on there. <laughs> was when we were creating. This was a Dan Brown novel. Like, was a, that would be the first 5500, if you can figure out that, you yeah. probably can find the Ark and all kinds <laughs> of other things too. So 5,500 is like the number of years ago that we were creating these tablets. That's, the, that's really the oldest cuneiform tablets that have been found to date. And according to Hobby Lobby, isn't that when the world was also started? It was just before that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think that's it for this week. Thank you um, for listening to Slate Money. Um, and if you like this, you should also check out the other Slate podcast called Working, which is hosted by Jacob Brogan. This season, they're talking to various people who work in Detroit. They've talked to a hair care entrepreneur, an urban farmer, and a battery technician at a big car firm. Our email address as ever is slatemoney at slate.com. Thanks to Dan Schrader for producing this week. Um, thanks to Anna Shemansky for coming on, but mostly many, many thanks to Larry Coben and Jesse Isinger for coming on and telling us all about white collar crime. We will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Slate Money. 